Happy Halloween, and welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. A happy Samhain and a happy Halloween to you and yours. May tonight's nightmares find you well and filled with candy. Now this is the time of year when life gives up its hold, and for the next six months we're destined to endure a dark and cold winter. But back in the day of the Celts, this was a celebration with much importance. It was paramount to enjoy oneself, because after all, this winter could be their last. They celebrated the nourishment their harvest had provided. But most importantly, they celebrated, perhaps with a healthy fear, the coming of the dark months. And as those months approach, so do the spirits of the dead and their legion of familiars. For this time of year also marks the point when the veil between our world and that of the spirit world is the thinnest. It's said to allow visitors of all kinds to wander in and out. But these days we take things a little lighter, but there's no denying that there's still a bit of magic in the air. A feeling you only get on Halloween. So tonight we celebrate in our own way by sharing a few sinister stories. Tales of ghosts, goblins, witches, black cats, and beastly hounds. And of course, what Halloween special would it be without killers, curses, and black magic? And as Shannon from the state of Oregon can tell us, even a ghoul or two. Hi, this is Shannon. I'm actually calling to relate a story of an experience that happened to my son. We were living in a place called Fall Creek, Oregon. We don't live there now, but... Um, we had just moved to the area from Eugene, and it was out in the middle of nowhere, woods, very isolated, very cool. They, you could see eagles and ravens and um, all kinds of wildlife. And I'd moved my children out there, hoping to enhance, you know, their life experience. However, where we lived was very creepy. It was kind of like in um, a surrounded by woods, but we lived in a little clearing. And it was just, it just had a weird vibe. 
and my kids were very on edge all the time and, and nervous. They didn't like it, um, and we didn't stay there very long. But one night, um, it was a mobile home trailer in this clearing. I had asked my son to throw something from his room, like a shelf, onto the patio. Now, the front door had right next to it a very large window, like almost wall size, facing out over a patio, which, you know, faced like the woods. And it was nighttime, and my son, he had opened the door and threw his shelf out, stepped inside the door, shut the door, and just stood there and was staring at me. And I looked at him, and I could tell he was white, and he was, like, in shock. The look made me very, it frightened me, and I was asking him, what what happened? What's wrong? Morgan, what's going on? And he couldn't speak. And I'm like, Morgan, like, you're scaring me. What's going on? I look out. I didn't see anything. And he said to me, I saw a face. And I'm like, you saw a face? What what kind of face? And he's like, I don't know, a, a face, a white face. So in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, maybe he saw an animal. A bobcat is the only thing I could think of that kind of has, especially in the dark, you know, eyes facing forward that could resemble a face. So I told the landlord, hey, you know, there's my son saw a bobcat on the porch. He said it was on the porch, kind of like on the railing, facing him as he stepped out of the door. And then when I looked, it was gone. So obviously, it, you know, it saw him. He got, got scared and jumped away. Throughout the years, we never really talked about it. But listening to this podcast, it made me think of, you know, different experiences and I was talking to my other son. I you remember when Morgan saw that bobcat on our porch? Like, you know, to see a wild animal, that's pretty cool. So my son, who's now 22, I think this happened when he was about 10, 11 years old. I said, hey, remember when you saw that bobcat on the porch? And he said to me, no, Mom, it wasn't a bobcat. I'm like, what do you mean it's not a, wasn't a bobcat? He says, no, I think what I saw was a rake. And I said, what? A rake? Are you serious? He said, you always said it was a bobcat. And I was terrified. And I really can't ex- explain or even really comprehend what I saw. It was so frightening. But throughout the years, I have looked on the Internet to kind of see, like, can I, you know, images connecting to what he saw. And he says, what I see on the Internet, I saw a rake. And it was holding on to the edge of the railing. And when I saw it and it looked at me, it had these big glassy eyes and it had white grayish skin and it jumped backwards like it pushed off and went backwards into the dark and I could hear it land on the gravel. And he said, and it wasn't in the shape of an animal. Its body was almost kind of like in a weird elongated shape with arms bent. That's what I saw. And he's, I still can't even like say for sure exactly what it was because it was terrifying. And he says that now he said to a few people, like his friends, and nobody believes him. He's like, but it was not a bobcat. Now that I know this, all these years later, I would have been way more terrified. I'm way more comfortable with him seeing a bobcat. But now that I know that, at the time, he was scared and shocked. He was also a child. In a way, I'm kind of glad we don't live there anymore because I don't think I could live in a place where something like that was peering into our house at the time my son stepped. Because it had to, if it was on the porch and on the railing, 
it was looking into that large window at us. And that's really, really unnerving. So anyway, um, yeah, now that I'm listening to your podcast and hearing all the different stories, um, now I'm we're more of a believer. Back then, um, I probably, even if he could tell me that, I probably wouldn't have believed him. But um, now, yeah, that's, that's a little bit frightening to know that those kind of things are out there. Thank you for your podcast. I enjoy listening and have a good day. Thanks, Shannon. Ah, our old friend, the rake. Now, it's my understanding that, like the Slender Man, the rake is a creature born and raised on the internet, specifically a platform called 4chan. But like most of these creepy crawlies, it doesn't stop the rake from popping up from time to time. From a Canadian video that appears to show a rake-like creature stalking a moose, to this famous trail camera footage. Okay, so you know how we ask you to send in your pics so we can put them in our newscast? Well, you've got to see what one viewer claims his friend found at a hunting camp in Berwick. I really don't even know what that is. The guy who sent it in didn't want us to mention his name, but tells us this is totally for real. He says last week and his friend's family found one of their hunting camps destroyed, but the SIM card was still there, and so was this crazy image. Now that clip comes courtesy of NBC News 33 out of Louisiana and features a trail cam photo of a creature that's not too dissimilar from what Shannon's son claimed to have seen. And as for that aforementioned uh, moose stalker video, that and this clip can be found in tonight's show notes at monstersamonguspodcast.com forward slash show notes. But I wouldn't be doing my job here if I didn't tell you that both aren't what they appear to be. The moose stalker, in my opinion, is a smudge on the windshield that appears to move only because they're filming through it. In other words, we're looking at forced perspective. In that trail cam photo, well, unfortunately, it's viral marketing for a video game. But don't let all that dissuade you. The rake might be fake, but its brother from another mother, the Pale Walker, seems to still be out there, lurking in the shadows. Then again, perhaps these creatures are both one and the same. Thanks again, Shannon. Now Halloween wouldn't be Halloween without a black cat. So Dustin from Indy has just what we need. Hi, this is Dustin from Indiana. I was calling to tell you about three black cat stories in my family. I'll try to keep it brief so other people can call in. But the first story is my mother and brother were hunting in the town of Sherman, Maine. That's where I grew up. I was in Maine all my life until the military. Now I'm living in Indiana. But my mother and my brother were hunting in a tree stand. I'd say this would be about 1995 and saw a ginormously big black cat to the point where they were looking through it with their scopes, didn't have a camera, of course, no cell phones back then, and they didn't see any reason why to shoot it or harm it, but just watched as it moved, as my mother said, in the sunlight, and it glistened and was so beautiful with its muscles and moving from the shade to the sun and sunning itself on a rock, she said, for about five minutes, and then it left. Fast forward to about 2000, 
I guess you'd call my grandmother-in-law, would be my wife's grandmother. She saw one in a potato field in the town of Hodgton, Maine. And she said that she saw it for roughly about 30 seconds and was trying to get closer on the track there when finally the cat just slunkered off into the woods, never to be seen again. But people, of course, didn't believe her. About 2003, I myself was driving home from the town of Oakfield, Maine, towards Sherman on the interstate. My cousin was with me in my little car, and we were driving down. I was like, wow, look at that bear on the side of the road. It looked like someone hit it. And my little cousin said to me, well, look close. I don't think that that's a bear. Of course, I was about 19 years old and focusing on the road. I glanced over and I saw the big paws and the long tail and the head. I was like, that's not a bear. That's a giant cat. Well, we were going about 70 miles an hour and there's nowhere really to turn around. It's a one-way highway. So we crossed over eventually, doubled back, and we were coming back again past it. We got up on and I saw all these blue lights. A couple state troopers, a couple of sheriffs, game warden, and a, even a ranger was there, a forest ranger. I was like, what is going on? So I pulled over and I rolled down my window and I say, hey, what, what is that? Is that a bear or what was that? We saw a cat, we think. And the guy said to me, the sheriff and the ranger walked up and he said, hey, there's nothing to see here. And he's like, you're going to need to just go along. And we argued with him for a few minutes and we're like, no, no, there was a black cat. Tell me that that's a cat because that's what we saw. And we couldn't see anything with the cars in between us and the carcass of the cat. And I'm telling you, it was big. And he wouldn't let us through, wouldn't let us talk, wouldn't let us do anything. And finally, they chased us off. Of course, being kids and not wanting to be in trouble, we just took off. But we, I know what I saw that day. And I know with these people I've talked to around the area, I'd say, hey, black cat say, oh, yeah, we've seen it out in this field. Or we saw it out there. We saw it over here. And it's not uncommon in Maine. Maine has a lot of things going on. And it doesn't ever really make the headlines or no one ever really talks about it. I'll leave it at that, but I did email a map of these towns, an Aroostook County, Maine map with arrows pointing to these towns. You can see on a map how quasi-close they are. It's only about 40 square miles for a big cat. That's nothing when you're roaming and feeding. Hope you can use this. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, sir. Now that is an ABC entry. With all due respect to the first two accounts, let's fast track to that last one. It's incredible. The details from this one hint toward a long-standing conspiracy theory that these creatures are known to exist by the authorities, but are kept under wraps for fear of panicking the masses. I really hate when people use that excuse. I myself am not a subscriber of this fantasy, however. For me, if they exist, the authorities don't seem to have much knowledge on the subject. I say this because of the numerous reports I receive from those authorities. The very people, it's claimed, are hiding their existence. But I'll end on this. Dustin and his family aren't the only ones to see things up there in lobster country. The following excerpt was taken from an article written by John Holyoke of the Banger Daily News. We were vacationing in Korea, Maine yesterday. I could barely believe my eyes, and neither could my daughter. We saw a black feline, definitely taller and longer than a Great Dane. It crossed the driveway in front of us no more than 100 feet from us, the reader wrote. Our dogs are with us and have been behaving strangely around the cabin we were staying in. Just 10 minutes before we saw the feline, my daughter heard something strange that she had never heard before. 
She said it sounded like something screaming as it was being eaten. The description of the feline as it crossed the driveway. It was about four and a half to five feet tall, and its body was at least five feet long, not counting the tail, the reader wrote. The tail. Oh my goodness. The tail hung like a large, long letter J. The tail was about as long as the feline's entire body and had a white ring around the edge. Its tail was not white-tipped, but rather had a ring around near the end of the tail. The cat was not speckled brown, but definitely all black. Now it's worth noting that the eastern cougar, or mountain lion, went extinct in Maine around 1906. So take that for what it's worth. And thanks again, Dustin, for sharing. Now I have a ton of calls to get through, but I wanted to remind you guys that you can rep your favorite podcast wherever you go. Just head over to the website at monstersamonguspodcast.com, click on the shop tab, and pick up a t-shirt, hat, tote, koozie, and much more. And for those that pre-ordered hoodies, we finally have those things ordered, and they'll be in in a week or two. Oh, we gave Alien Big Cats a spotlight, so it's time to give the opponent equal time. Please welcome Sam from Nebraska to the show. Hi, Derek. My name's Sam. I'm from Omaha, Nebraska. And this thing kind of happened about four years ago. My freshman year of high school, I'm a senior now. It was around early October. So at the time, both my twin brother and I were on the bus list. And so we had a bus stop about maybe one and a half to maybe one mile away from our house. So a creek runs through the neighborhood back behind our bus stop. One day, early in the morning, about 6.45, So I was talking to my brother, and all of a sudden, he just doesn't respond. And so I look over at him, and he's turned around, uh, looking down the street over by the creek, and he's just white, completely white. And uh, I follow his line of sight, and I see this thing. It looked to be like, I don't know, maybe a bear or a large dog, but it was standing up on its hind legs, sniffing at a couple cars, and then it just darted back into the tree line and I still can't understand what it was. There are no bears in the middle of Nebraska, so I don't know if maybe it was a large dog that just decided to stand up on its hind legs, but it wasn't braced against a car or anything like that. It stood up out of its own volition. My brother still refuses to talk about it. I don't know what it was and I was hoping you could maybe lend some insight. I hate to jump to conclusions, but that description almost sounds more like a dogman than anything else. Tall, bear-like, bipedal. And before anyone claims it was likely a bear, while you could be right, it's important to note that the last black bear sighted in the Omaha area occurred back in the 1870s. So at this point, seeing a black bear would almost be as rare as seeing a dogman. Now, I wasn't able to find much information on Nebraska werewolves or dogmen. So if any listeners out there know of any hairy legends, 
please let me know. And speaking of letting me know, I had a few listeners, notably Dan and Ronald, point out that last week's call about the time slip in the strange car was based on an actual vehicle. Now, according to these gentlemen, the car did exist, but only 51 of them were made back in 1947 and 1948. Now, here's the odd detail. The Tucker 300 featured a third headlight, dead center of the grille, that moved with a steering wheel. And while I'm at it, if you have a call you'd like to share, give the hotline a call at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Now, witches are next up on our list of Halloween staples. For this one, please welcome Maria from California to the program. Hi, my name is Maria. I'm calling from SoCal, and this story actually belongs to my mother and my grandmother. Unfortunately, my grandmother passed away from cancer, so this is my mother's point of view. And it basically, it comes from our hometown in Mexico, Mexico City, and it had to do with basically a murdering witch. She was basically a hit for hire. She was known as La Matona, which translated as to the killer. She was well-known. She wasn't, like, in the outskirts or secluded or anything. And how my grandmother met her personally was that she went to get her cards read because we have a long history and connection of witchcraft and, you know, like, the healing and the white magic and stuff in my family. So we're very comfortable with it. So she just went to her, and from there she told her, I want your husband. My grandma was smart enough not to fight with, you know, a killer witch. She was like, okay, that's cool. Do whatever you want. You're not going to get him. So basically, time went on. My grandmother stayed away from her, just knowing that she basically made an enemy right there and then. And there was a random night, I think, that she had, like, a small get-together, and she showed up. And my grandmother, again, being, you know, diligent and careful, let her in and just try to make nice. And she was like, okay, come in, whatever. And she brought her a small, like, plate of food. And my grandma was like, no, 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 I have food here. You don't have to worry. I, you can eat here. You don't have to bring anything. And she's like, no, 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 eat this. I made it. And this is my mother's point of view comes in. And she says that she remembers my grandma sitting the little, like, it was, I think it was like tacos aside. And the night passed and everybody was gone. And my grandma went to open the plate, and it was nice, normal food. And then, like, five minutes later, she came back, and it was molded and filled with maggots and such. It's disgusting. And my grandma just gasped and turned white. And this is why my mother always tells me never eat at a house or somewhere where you know you're not welcome because they might do things to your food. And I feel like that's the way that she killed people. Once you eat that, like black magic once you eat that dark supernatural i don't know what they do to it hex it there's basically no way to coming back from that and you kind of die and after a year of what she recalls of like problems of her coming in at night like banging on the door screaming she would throw graveyard dirt at the front door which is said to like whoever steps on that is meant to die or is meant to have like horrible accidents she would throw animal bones at the doors she would do a whole bunch of like random crazy stuff but the only reason I feel like my family there was okay is because 
on my grandma's side, her sisters practiced the white magic, and they were healers, and then they were cleansing them all the time. They put protection spells, I guess, on the house. And my mom recalls one night vividly that she came over, and, like, they were really getting into it fighting. And she told her, because of your incessant attitude, because of your black blood, and because of your crossed veins, I can't effing kill you. And it just stuck with me. I was like, what the heck? Like, have you never told me this? So really crazy stuff. I don't know how that has to do with how you're protected or the black magic, but it kind of runs deep in our family. We have a pretty wild history, not not like us being witches, but of practicing and fighting it, even up until my grandma, my grandpa's death. And I've had siblings that have died before. They were all under suspicious circumstances. I don't know how, but thank you. Thank you, Maria. She sounds like one bad witch. Now I hope the power this particular woman possessed was rare. I'm weird about my food even without mold and maggots. Thanks again, Maria, for taking the time to share. Now next up on our list of Halloweeny tropes is a familiar creature of unusual size. In my time living at Lake Kuyamaka, I spent much of my free time in the parks hiking. I hiked anywhere from 10 to 20 miles a day, depending upon the demands on my time for the day. In all my time hiking, I regularly encountered the animals who lived in the Kuyamaka Rancho and Anza Borrego Desert State Parks. I saw many turkeys, some of whom made a home in my yard, most likely because I fed them. Deer, coyotes, rattlesnakes, and other reptiles, a wide range of birds, tarantulas, and plenty of other spiders, scorpions, bats, rabbits, raccoons, and even once a black bear. I always made a point of identifying any new creature I came across. Only one animal could I never identify. It was one I saw while driving back home late one night. I had driven up to Alpine in the early evening, and it was dark while I was returning home on Highway 79. If you've ever driven this road through the Kuyamaka Rancho Park, you'll know that it's a winding road, with hairpin bends, sheer drops along one side, and no lights. Along one portion where the road resembles a backwards-facing number three, I was beginning a curve leftwards when my headlights swept across the curve of the next bend over. There was an animal huddled in the road. My first thought was rabbit, but I immediately dismissed that. It was too large. So my next assumption was raccoon. It was about the right size. I was already driving slowly due to the road and the dark, but I slowed even more just in case it would still be in the road. As I made the tight right turn, my headlights swept back onto it. I kept staring at it, unmoving in the road as I rolled forward. I stopped about 20 feet from it when I finally realized what I was looking at. It was a spider. Its body was flat to the road. Its legs were pulled tight to its body. The bent legs extended well above the body. It was approximately a foot and a half across and a little over a foot high, maybe. It was thickly bristled, Brindled dark brown and light gray, not the fine dark velvet of the tarantulas with which I was familiar. 
The legs were also much thinner and longer proportionally to its body than that of a typical tarantula. I sat there maybe a minute with it unmoving and I started to wonder if someone's Halloween decoration had fallen out of their car, though it was completely out of season for it, being early summer. I let my car roll forward maybe another five feet to see if it would move. Its body popped up off the ground, and its legs darted out to the side. It was now well over two feet across. It froze like that, for about four seconds. Four very long seconds for me, watching this thing watching me. Then it shot off the road towards the drop-off to my right. I say shot, because its speed was incredible. It was like trying to see a hummingbird's wings in flight. So fast it was just a blur. As soon as I arrived home, I tried to research to identify it. I felt a bit foolish, actually, to have allowed myself to be oblivious of such a large spider species living where I regularly hiked. I had no luck. I found there are a very limited number of significantly sizable spiders none that resemble the one I saw, and most definitely none catalog living in the area. Perhaps you or your viewers will have more luck in identifying it. Thank you, Ash. Yet another creature to add to our growing list of oddities in and around Anza Borrego State Park here in Southern California. Now it's worth noting that there are a few species of spider here in SoCal that are said to reach mammoth size. That's about six inches across, not the two feet that Ash claimed. Now I'm not super familiar with legends of large spiders in the US, but I do recall a few legends from other parts of the globe. The Jabafufi is a legendary spider that's said to roam the jungles of the Congo. A spider thought to reach sizes of four feet across, and is claimed to have the ability to kill and eat dogs. I guess that's why they say always watch where you walk when you're in the desert. Thanks again, Ash, for sharing your entry. Now before we trudge on, a very quick announcement for my Patreon subscribers. Due to some back-end changes and all the extra time needed to assemble tomorrow's live virtual Halloween party, more on that here in a little bit. As a result, I'm pretty short on time, so the October Patreon episode will be released early next week. My apologies for the truancy, but I'll add in a few extra stories to make up for it. Now next on our list is a little black magic. Will, welcome to the program. Hey Derek, I'm calling to tell you a story that happened to my uncle that my mom told me back in late 1970s. They used to live in Mexico. Uh, my mom comes from a large family of 10 and my uncle was the second oldest. And my mom told me when he was in his mid twenties, he used to come home after work and he always liked to read black magic books. That was his thing. He read them every day. So my grandpa at the time was the barber of the town they lived in. So he cut hair at a building attached to their house. It was practically a shed. So when he wasn't cutting hair, my uncle 
he would take that room as his bedroom for the night. He would read those books under candlelight and multiple times every night he said that he can hear the something blowing out the candle. He just relit it, kept reading. I guess one night while he was reading, he finished and his bed was in the middle of the room. That's where he kept it because that's the coolest area of the room. So he turned off the candle, started trying to go to sleep. He's small. I was told that he said that he was stretched out, his arms behind his back, trying to relax. And he said he just felt something grab his arms and something bite him on the neck really hard. He said it would hurt so bad. And he tried to resist to get out of the grip. He couldn't move his arms and he just kept getting bit on the neck. So eventually he was able to kick off with his legs on his bed, do a backwards roll. And he said he landed on top of what was biting him. He said the second he felt it, it was hairy all over and it just disappeared and he fell to the floor. Ever since that day, he no longer read those books anymore. He stayed away from them. He freaked them out too much. Felt like the devil was after him. Well, that's my story. Thanks for the podcast. Love it. Listen to it every day. Bye. Thanks, Will. I'm starting to wonder if we all had creepy uncles that did weird things. Or maybe that's just me. Maybe I am the creepy uncle. I really find the detail that the creature was hairy very peculiar. Does that imply some sort of terrestrial creature? Or does this coincide with the many reports I've heard about demonic entities reportedly covered in a thick, coarse hair? Either way, Will, it's scary stuff, and we truly appreciate you taking the time to share it with us. Now I should mention that you can find additional programming over at our Patreon page. Simply visit patreon.com and search for Monsters Among Us podcast. Now, what would a Halloween episode be without a good old-fashioned ghost story? Well, to meet that quota, we head to the land of enchantment, where we visit with Jeremy. Good evening, Derek. My name is Jeremy. I'm calling from Tash Pueblo, New Mexico. Um, just started listening to the podcast over the quarantine and uh, really got interested after I heard uh, the military story last week. I work out of a BIA for the Bureau of Indian Affairs with a wildland fire crew. Incident happened back in 2004. We were on a fire assignment on a 14-day detail in Montana. And uh, around day 10, we ended up in near Crow Agency, close to the Little Bighorn Memorial site. Long story short, we ended up staying the last four nights at Crow Agency. The first night was three-quarter moon, waning gibbons, and uh, we were camped out in a big rodeo area, big field. First night, uh, a couple of the guys were talking about seeing a Native American lady in buckskin dress with uh, long hair. During the night while we were sleeping, um, and we always talk on the day 11 when we were out in the field that following night. And so, uh, you know, we just, just talk amongst the guys, 20-man crew, Native American crew. So we were throwing around the idea of ghosts and whatnot and uh you know we brushed it off but didn't think anything about it and anyway that night i went to sleep i woke up with real eerie feeling and i thought i was awake but i guess i was dreaming that i was awake but anyway i uh seen um a lady walking around and 
in my dream, she came to my tent and, um, you know, it's pretty night, uh, moonlit, about 60 degrees, so I didn't put my rain fly up. And um, through the screen, I could see her walking around through the camp. And I guess I fell asleep again or whatnot, but toward the morning, I woke up with uh, pretty bad cramps, um, sleep paralysis, I believe, because when I woke up, she was standing over my tent looking down at me, but I couldn't make out her face through her hair. She was wearing a white buckskin dress, couldn't see her feet, more or less levitating off the ground, high enough for her to look down on me into my tent without the rain fly. And I woke up uh, with the cramps in my thighs and my ribs and, you know, it's, it's fire, it's hard work. So I figured it was just not enough water, not enough electrolytes. So I brushed off the dream and talked about it the next day with the guys when we were having lunch break and come to find out that nine other people on the crew had seen this lady or had a visit from her at one point or another during the night. And then um, on the third night that we were there, one of our crew members was dragged out of his tent, still in his sleeping bag, and he got dragged quite a distance away. What we all woke up when we heard him yelling. First thing he asked was, did you see her? You know, did you see anybody? Because I got dragged out of my tent. That was the night of day 13. We ended up getting demobbed on the next day after shift, so we had to drive up to Billings. And during the, the ride up, a few of us guys were talking about what we had experienced and you know, it's it's nothing new. I mean, it was new to everyone. We hadn't had that kind of experience and, and uh, kind of like spooked everybody. And so it happens that when we got home, we ended up headed back up to Montana as Montana was burning pretty good that year in 2004. So most of us got switched out. So 10 of us, uh, I think four of us that had seen the lady on the detail before ended up going up into Glacier National Park. And the same thing happened again, a native lady, an older lady. This time, but she was wearing a brown buckskin dress. She was accompanied by two young children with her. And they were walking around the campfire camp area where we were spiked out. And uh, there was two crews with us at that time, so there was three crews altogether. And next morning, people were talking about kids laughing and running around. And then the older lady, I don't know, um, speaking native language, I'm not too sure. Tribes are in the area at that, you know, that speak the native language, so it was um, unknown to us, but, you know, Throughout the nights that we were up there for about eight nights, we kept hearing the older lady, you know, calling the children, and the children were laughing and playing. And then a few times the guys that woke up would see her, and not too close this time, it was more of a distance. Uh, and then, of course, um, the cramping again started with uh, most of the guys on the crew. So, um, yeah, you know, that kind of brought out the memory of that fire when I heard that story with the, the situation that happened with the military guys. and some that I thought I would share with you guys coming from Wildland Fire Crew. I really appreciate the show. I just heard it recently, so I've been binge listening to as much as I can. And thanks a lot for the time tonight, and I look forward to sharing more. Thank you. Thanks, Jeremy. And thank you for fighting those fires. I know we live in fear of those things at least half of the year. Now I'm perplexed by this particular retelling. It seems that the exact same activity was experienced by two different sets of people in two different locations, and even two separate sets of ghosts. Now it appears that the only connection we have here is that both parties were fighting wildfires. So is it possible that these spirits are somehow attracted to these men because of that? 
I know I have many native listeners out there, so perhaps one of you guys listening has some information as to what might be going on here. But I certainly find that connection uh, pretty interesting. So thanks again, Jeremy, for sharing. As creepy as that experience sounds, I'm incredibly jealous that you got to see what you did. I'd almost like to say it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And now we've reached our final entry of the evening. And this particular parable originates from the sort of place you'd expect a goblin story to occur. The bluegrass state of Kentucky. But more on that connection in a little bit. But first, I'm pleased to welcome our anonymous caller to the show. This took place probably about 1999, 2000-ish. I had to be about seven years old because my brother wasn't born yet. This is in Louisville, Kentucky, probably about a quarter mile from the banks of the Ohio River. I grew up in an old house on the river with my mom and grandma. And it was one of those creepy old houses that had the outdoor cellar doors open up to the sky. And, you know, completely unfinished in there, just, you know, raw concrete on the ground and generally creepy place with a singular light bulb and the wispy string hanging from the top. And a lot of weird things would happen in there. The TV would come on and off. I mean, it was an old building, though, so it could have just been wiring. But one night I was sleeping in the same bed as my grandmother. My mom was sleeping on the couch. And I woke up in the middle of the night. It had to be about three in the morning. And I look over at my grandma kind of give her a little shake and say something but she doesn't respond so I just leave her alone and I step over the edge of the bed and as my foot hits the ground I can see like a translucent almost like holographic hand reach out and it's long skeletal fingers with like thin skin stretch over and it's like neon green but not glowing but like translucent it doesn't look real at all but I can feel it and I'm pulling as hard as I can and I go to scream and I'm just so terrified absolutely nothing comes out of my mouth and you know I'm having cold sweats I'm shaking and I finally wiggle my foot free and I hit the ground with my other foot and take off in a dead sprint through the doorway and directly across the doorway is another doorway and I immediately turn left and as I look over my shoulder, I see the only way to describe it is like a little goblin that looked to be a foot tall, maybe, and no noise or anything. It was the same translucent holographic look to it. Like it didn't look real. I could see it. So I turn forwards again and take off sprinting directly into the living room where my mom is sleeping on the couch and jump onto the couch with her. And she doesn't wake up which I don't know why I didn't try to wake her up or scream or something, but I just sat there, like, frozen in fear, staring at this armchair directly across the room. It's very poorly lit in there. The TV's off and everything. It's just just the moonlight coming through the closed shades. And I can see this big, hulking figure almost behind the chair, just menacing. I can't see any figures, just that it's huge. And I just sat there and stared at it for the next, it must have been two hours before I finally fell asleep. But when I woke up, there was nothing there. And the only way I could explain it is some type of hallucination type thing, because 
I used to sleepwalk as a child a lot and I know it's kind of gross, but I've heard other people doing it, like, just, like, peeing, like, standing up and just peeing, like, in a urinal in my sleep, but I'm, like, six or seven years old. So, I mean, maybe it was something weird like that, but that's the only thing I can think of to explain it. All right, it's about five minutes. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, caller. Now, I associate the term goblin with the state of Kentucky because of a singular event, the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblin Incident. The year was 1955. It was hot and humid in the hills of Kentucky on the evening of August 21st. Eight miles north of the small town of Hopkinsville, Kentucky, a mere 150 miles from our caller's location, lies the tiny village of Kelly, Kentucky. On the night in question, 11 people were crammed into a sweltering farmhouse, nestled in the hills above town. Among those in the home was the matriarch of the family, Glennie Sutton, her son, Elmer Lucky Sutton, and some of his friends visiting from a local carnival where they were employed. Lucky's daughter, Geraldine Sutton Stith, remembers the event. Whatever happened that night, I don't know, I wasn't there but it was something that terrified my father till the day he died. Did Daddy ever talk about it? Not very often. You were very, very, very lucky if you got into talk. And me, I didn't want to hear it. It scared me. Around dusk, Lucky's friend, Billy Ray Taylor, went out to the well to pump water for the wash basin. That's when something streaking the sky caught his attention. And while he was out there, he saw something going across the sky. It was oval in shape, silver. And he said, with the colors of the rainbow floating behind it. Didn't know what it was, never saw anything like that before in his life. Now from what I gather, Billy Ray was known to be a bit of a trickster. So when he burst into the house screaming about a flying saucer, no one took notice. Eventually, Billy Ray was able to convince Lucky and Glennie to go outside and have a look. Reluctantly, they shuffled out the front door, only to find, not to their surprise, nothing. Annoyed, they turned to head back inside, when suddenly... And as they were going back in, they saw something coming out from the back of the woods up in the back of the house, and it was like three, three and a half foot tall, arms almost to the ground, and they were floating above the ground. Of course, anybody in their right mind would know, well, this is something <laughs> not right here. They run in the house and tell everybody, yes, we saw something out here, something out here. When members of the Sutton family first saw the creatures approaching the house, they described them as little human-like figures, three to four feet tall, with pointed ears. But the most prominent feature of their entire makeup was the large, round eyes that appeared not to blink. That voice is Kelly area historian William Turner. Now, as you would expect, at the sight of the creature, the group hurried inside. Now, this is where most stories like this end. But for this one, this is just a beginning. Billy Ray shoots. My grandmother falls to the floor. Everybody comes running to where they're at. They help her up. And she's, I, I saw it. There is something out here. About that time, a shot rings out in the front of the house. My Uncle J.C. shoots one through the window. And that's when all hell breaks loose. 
Every able-bodied man grabbed a firearm and began shooting through the windows at the creatures. And the women and children rushed to hide under beds. Billy Ray runs out the front stoop and there, one is sitting up there and a hand comes down, tries to grab him. Eileen grabs him and yanks him back in. My dad runs out there, shoots that one off the house and they notice that when they shoot him, they drop and roll and just float back away. The standoff continued for several hours. As the creatures approached the house, the terrified men would fire, holding them at bay until finally, like a scene out of an old 80s horror flick, Lucky and Billy Ray managed to reach the pickup truck and speed off for help. When the investigating officers arrived, they made a thorough search of the house. They were joined soon thereafter by personnel from the sheriff's office and even some military personnel from nearby Fort Campbell. A thorough search was made of the house and the grounds surrounding the house. There was rifle shells and shotgun shells all over the ground and inside the house. Holes and screens, woodwork shot up, clear evidence they were shooting at something, but no blood, no bodies. As expected, the police and soldiers from a nearby base concluded their fruitless investigation and hightailed it back to town. It was as if this saga hasn't seen enough sequels. An hour or so later, the strange creatures returned. The occupants of the tiny, bullet-hole-ridden farmhouse managed to hold their ground until morning, when the creatures simply went away. What didn't go away, however, is the morbid curiosity that people have for this strange story. Media and onlookers alike flocked to the town, hoping to catch a glimpse of one of these, as they were called at the time, little green men. So maybe it was wise of our caller to remain anonymous on this one. He might end up with people camping out in his yard. And before you think that this entire thing was probably made up, I did catch one detail in these clips that lent a little credence to the reports. By the way, those clips come courtesy of the program Creepy Canada and WHAS ABC News 11 out of Louisville, Kentucky. Now the clip that I found was a mention historian William Turner gave about something odd a nearby officer reported seeing that very evening. There was a police officer at nearby Shady Oaks restaurant, maybe three miles from Kelly. And this police officer indicated that sometime just prior to the reported landing of the spacecraft at Kelly, that he saw uh, a series, maybe three, uh, meteors streaking northeastwardly across the sky in the general directional pattern of Kelly. So there you have it. Halloween through the airwaves. The digital airwaves, at least. Now, before I duck out of here, I have a little update on tomorrow's virtual Halloween party. The event begins at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, and can be found on both our YouTube and Facebook pages. This is an all-ages event, so feel free to bring the kids, whip up a costume, and come watch, join the chat, or even pop on camera to enter the costume contest or the paranormal trivia game show. Now when you do venture over, 
Virtually, of course. Be sure to bring your wallet. We are featuring nearly a dozen virtual vendors, and these awesome cryptid artists have great discounts. In addition, we're doing what we can to raise money for a great cause in the fire-wrought regions of Northern California and Oregon. More specifically, a group that helps reunite pets lost and displaced by the tragic wildfires. Now, if all that doesn't tickle your fancy, we have live music, scheduled art, guests, and many more surprises. And hey, we're giving away tons of prizes. So hit up your social media accounts for more details. And I'll see you tomorrow. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And the terrifying score that you hear, that's co.ag music and white bad audio. Thank you so much for listening, and until next week. Tonight's very Halloween-worthy secret entry is going to play us out. So until next week, stay spooky and stay safe. Have a happy Halloween. Hi, I was just thinking about the story that we were told in summer camp. I can't validate any of the story. It was a story we were told. I don't know if any of it's true, so take it with a grain of salt. We were told this happened in the early 80s. Like I said, I've never been able to verify it, but at Camp Wairiki in Camas, Washington, we were told that there was a man with a hook hand that would come and tap on our windows. And we're not sure, I don't, I remember hearing tapping on the windows, but it may have been the counselors messing with us. But we were told that the camp used to be a prison camp and that one of the guys had literally stabbed his bunkmate to death because he snored. Now, I'll caveat this by we were in the sixth grade. So however that is, and it was high school kids telling us this story. So we were all freaked out. But the funny part of the story was the fact that there was a plane in the trees, or what looked to be a plane up in the trees. We were told that they had moved him from the camp after he'd stabbed the other prisoner, and they were flying over and the plane crashed. He was handcuffed and had to cut off his hand. (laughs) Now he has a hook hand and he runs around tapping on the windows trying to scare us children, and that's why we weren't allowed to go outside at night. 
like I said before, this could all be made up high school kids trying to scare middle schoolers. Yeah. Thanks. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.